Hi, I'm Hazel Jane Plant, and this is Tea for Tea. I'm a librarian, a cat photographer, and a trans writer. On this podcast, I'll be talking to other trans writers about writing and things they've written. Basically, Tea for Tea is a podcast about writing while trans. For this episode, I chatted with Megan Milks, who published four books in 2021. Yes, that's right, four books in one year, which is bananas. The best place to start with their work is um, the novel Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, which was nominated for a Lambda Award for Transfiction, and it's an incredible, ambitious book. Uh, we talked a bunch about it. I also love their book of short fiction, Slug and Other Stories, and their thin book about a now-defunct part of the internet, the Tori Amos bootleg web ring. I haven't read the anthology they co-edited about the Babysitter's Club yet, but I'm sure it's also really good. I wanted to talk to Megan Milks partly because four books in one year, like what the fuck? Partly because we have a lot of overlap in what we focus on writing-wise, especially things like queerness, transness, pop culture, friendship, and partly because I think they're an incredibly interesting and talented writer who I can learn things from. Shortly after my first novel, Little Blue Encyclopedia for Vivian, came out, I remember Megan Milks writing something really smart and generous about it and mentioning that they'd chosen it as a title to discuss with their queer book club. And I was just really moved. Um, honestly, it's just such a joy to know that, oh, this thing I made meant something to another person. Um, and then last year, I messaged Megan, and I was like, hey, I just finished reading your book, Tori Amos Bootleg Webring, and I want to send you a copy of a fancy, very pretty thing I just published in a tiny print run about a film that does not exist. I think you'd like it. And they were a game. So I mailed them a copy, and then they mailed me an advanced reading copy of Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, and I was reminded of exchanging bootleg tapes, which my dad did back in the 80s. Um, he was a really big Bruce Springsteen fan. And so brown paper envelopes would arrive from other places like London or Milwaukee. And it always seemed sort of illicit. So it was pretty delightful to dip back into that illicitness with our literary works. Um, I do sometimes worry about these conversations that I'm not asking questions that most people listening might care about, but I don't think that's what I want to do, really. I'm pretty much focused on having conversations with writers I admire and asking them questions that I genuinely have. In some ways, I think these chats might be sort of similar if I wasn't recording them. I mean, there'll probably be more gossip, let's be honest. Um... But I think in some ways, maybe listening to them is sort of like eavesdropping a bit. Um, so I invite you to eavesdrop on my conversation with um, the lovely and talented Megan Milks. Yeah, I mean, you've had such an interesting like like year and everything. Too. Like, I mean, huge congrats on like the Lemmy Nom. Like this year, there were just so many books. Like, I mean like it's ridiculous right like sometimes just super ridiculous yeah yeah thank you so much um yeah such a huge year for queer and trans books really a bonanza yeah and you are somebody so you had like oh no like it's 
it's super uh, interesting to me because like out of anybody, I'm like, wow, like four books in one year just seems like, and I know the publishing cycles. So I'm sure like some of these started quite some time ago and then they kind of worked their way through. But like, I'm wondering if kind of at the start here, just to kind of be able to get a bit of a sense of like the literally like four books you published, three like book books that you wrote and then one a book that you co-edited. Um, to my mind, they're kind of in conversation a little bit, these these four books. Like there's a bunch, because I'm a librarian, so there are all these like Venn diagrams of where I'm like, oh, there's all these overlap. And in some ways, ah. kind of all of them kind of coalesce to a certain extent. Is it possible to kind of give like a, a kind of like snapshot and like connect the dots between the four books of yours that came out in 2021? Sure, absolutely. And I want to say uh, first that... <clears throat> I haven't had a book since 2014 prior to this, you know, kind of windfall. So um, it is, it is highly unusual. And um, yeah, it, it was a very strange experience, especially to have them all come out during the pandemic and, you know, um, but the big one um, is Margaret and the mystery of the missing body, um, my novel, which I had been working on for many, many years, um, you know, on and off while working on other things, of course. Um, and uh, that book was very, it took a long time to figure, figure the book out for one thing. It took a long time to um, sell the book. Um, and during the time that it was on, we went on submission twice. And during the time that it was on submission, um, I just like channeled my anxieties into other projects. Um, so that is where, oh, go ahead. Can I just get you to explain what on submission means? Just in case folks are listening, they're like, I do not know what that means. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I should also say this is, yeah, that was the first time I had, um, that I went out, you know, I sent my book out, which is what the submission, what it means by on submission. Um, I had an agent that was new for me. Um, you know, I came up in the kind of experimental fiction, um, like hybrid, uh, kind of um, more academic leaning um, world of, of writing. And I never really imagined that I would be the kind of writer who would have an agent and like, you know, try to try to get a book deal. Um, but that is what happened. Um, and uh, as we went on submission the second time, um, I suggested to my agent that we try to sell the novel with a revised edition of my first collection, Kill Marguerite. Um, since that book was basically out of print, um, the uh, publisher, the original publisher, Emergency Press, um, went under shortly after the book was published in 2014. Um, so it was always it was, it was really kind of a bummer. Um, and also, you know, when that book came out, I was uh, really heavily on the job market, and I was living. Um, a pretty isolated existence in a small town in the middle of Illinois. And I didn't really have an opportunity to kind of celebrate its release. Um, I was just like so tired. I was traveling a lot for campus interviews and um, it was, you know, not not a great time in my life. Um, So I really wanted a kind of um, opportunity to revisit that project um, and uh, kind of remake it in a way and my agent thought that was a good idea. And so um, amazingly, Feminist Press was uh, excited about both books. And so they put 
out both books um, together strategically in the fall. Um, so that, so Kill Marguerite now is Slug and other stories. Um, and there are, I think, um, maybe six or seven new stories mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of the older stories have been swapped out. And then some of them I did revise. I, I really love revision. So um, uh, it was such a, I was really just geeking out about the opportunity to go back and like rework some of those stories. Yeah, the other two books. Uh, so, so the We Are the Babysitters Club anthology um, came about because I had read part of Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body, which has some BSC homage within it. Um, my friend Marissa Crawford, who became my co-editor, invited me to read as part of her launch party for her book, Irreversible, which came out, I think, in 2016 or 2017. And so I read that excerpt. And then when Marissa was kicking around the idea to do a Babysitter's Club anthology, um, she thought of me and that just kind of fell into place. Um, So yeah, so definitely lots of, you know, parallels. Well, well, maybe not lots, but definite parallels between those two projects. And in writing my piece for that book, I, um, I figured out some things about the novel. So there was like a kind of, they're definitely in conversation. And then finally, the last book is the Tori Amos bootleg web ring um, book, which is a short, you know, cultural history slash memoir. And that just came about because I was at a party with Jean Thornton, who's amazing, who I love. Um, And uh, she was telling um, me and some other people about this new series that she was doing through Instar Books, which she co-runs with Miracle Jones, um, called Remember the Internet. and I was just like, well, I have an idea for you. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, my book was on submission. I was like, I need things to do. <laughs> um, so, so, and that was a pretty easy, quick, I think I wrote that in um, maybe five months, um, something like that. It's, it's pretty short. Um, yeah, so, and then of course, uh, to get back to your question about like how they're in conversation, uh yeah Tori Amos like shows up in Margaret and um yeah yeah no I, I appreciate that because it's just one of those things where it's like good to have kind of like the lay of the land I think early on because then I will start bringing up different projects and some of my questions are just much larger like it was really mm-hmm. this is one of the things that's so delightful talking to writers who like whose work I really adore and admire is like sitting with the work and then mm-hmm. seeing what kinds of questions like emerge through the work, but also through stuff that I like genuinely have questions about. Like, I'm not really interested in like, hey, tell me about this thing that like I kind of know the answer to. It's like some of my stuff is very specific to like, hey, you have a skill in this area. I want to get better in this area or or that kind of thing. Like one of the things I found myself really thinking, especially like reading through like, yeah, Margaret and the Mystery of the Missing Body and like Slug and Other Stories was like just the amount of time between those there. And I guess I'm kind of thinking a little bit about like what writing looked like for you, like around 2007 or whatever versus what it looks like now, which is like, 15 years later and also kind of the interesting thing of like yeah rewriting and like revisiting those like I have a copy of my copy of like Fist of the Spider Woman here which like Slug was initially Slug was initially in and just kind of like yeah how your kind of like process looks differently and kind of like Mm -hmm. and also revisiting that that previous work um 
Yeah, what a, these are really amazing questions. Thank you so much. Um, oops. Okay, yeah, 2007 versus now. Uh, wow, yeah. Huh. So 2007, I lived in Chicago. Um, well, that was actually the year I moved from Philly to Chicago. So I was, I was doing a master's program at Temple. Um, that, and I met Andrea Lawler there, um, mm. author of Politics, the Form of Immortal Girl. Yeah. Uh, Andrea was in my cohort and we both were um, there. Well, I, I, wanna, I don't wanna speak for Andrea, but um, we both were really excited to be working with Samuel Delaney who was, who was teaching in the, in the program at that time. Um, and, and then I moved to Chicago to pursue a PhD uh, in lit, lit and creative writing. Um, during that time, I was in the process of coming out. Um, so I was like 25, 26, and, mm -hmm. um, or I guess 27. Um, and uh, yeah, it, during my two years in Philadelphia, like I really just like transformed, you know, it was the first time I came into a kind of queer community. And then I was like, oh, am I appropriating queerness by thinking I might be queer when maybe I'm not? I, I don't know. It took me a long time yeah. <laughs> to just be like, yes, I am. And I can be. And you know, whatever. Um, so, uh, but yeah, so I was having a lot of, I was doing a lot of self-interrogation around sexuality and desire. Um, not so much gender at that time, though I definitely go back and see all the gender anxiety that was, that was in my work during that time. Um, and then when I moved to Chicago, I was just like, I'm here, I'm queer. I want to, you know, explore queerness and and uh I want to you know have lots of queer experiences um and so yeah honestly my time in Chicago is really uh I uh it, it was really me like coming into queerness and queer community in a way that was really important and and quite be beautiful and powerful and difficult and you know all of this stuff. Um, so what I'm saying is I, I don't know that I did a great job in my PhD program because <laughs> I was very distracted. Fair, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, all of, all of the writing that I did during that time was like very much trying to understand desire, trying to understand these new intimacies that I was exploring. Um, uh, yeah, romantic feelings. Um, dealing with boundary issues. So I had never, um, I was basically asexual until I like came into a queer identity. So, um, so when I was like in my 20, I was like upper 20s, 27, 28, I was going through a lot of the things that people go through when they're younger and first, you know, exploring mm -hmm. relationships. So I was, it was kind of, you know, it was a complicated position to be in because in, in certain ways I felt like wise and mature because I had you know seen my friends go through similar things but I was also going through these things for the first time and so I was feeling them very intensely and um so a lot of that went into my my work um but to go back to your question about process um at that time I really loved writing very late at night mm -hmm. like I I, lo I like to put on like PJ Harvey or um, music. I listen to music 
a lot then, which yeah. I note because I don't now. Now I'm like, silence. I must have silence. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to write a short story when you're like listening to like four track demos by PJ Harvey or something <laughs> like this. And you're like, oh, this person is listening to this song that I'm listening to right now. Like that's, <laughs> I, f- I find it so hard. I find it impossible, honestly. Yeah, me too now. But back then, like I had to have it, you know, I had to have like really loud music and I had to be writing late at night. I'm sure this was like all about my romanticized idea of what a writer should be or look like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now I write in the morning <laughs> and, um, with, uh, with you know, as silent as, as it can be. Um, but yeah, no, I was very committed to writing daily and um and honoring honoring the work. I I didn't really have a professional. I didn't think of myself as like professionalized in any way. It was very much like a, you know, my I was really kind of leading into like my artistic self. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, no, I, I appreciate all of that. I, I can totally I, I totally think I probably did something really similar as far as like listening to the music and stuff. And it's just like and I think it is that kind of romantic thing in a way. Um, I know I have a question here somewhere that's kind of like a little bit, it's not even a question. It's one of these things that I found myself, like sometimes I'll just be sitting with something. Like I was on a walk and I was thinking about that book, Body Keeps the Score. And there's a very specific thing in there of where like Bessel van der Kock quotes someone as saying like, scientists study what puzzles them most. So that Mm. they often become experts in subjects others take for granted. Or as the attachment researcher Beatrice Beebe once told me, most research is me-search. And I found myself (laughs) thinking about like, oh, are stories kind of like a way of like word processing? Like, it's like you write a thing and then like a year later, five years later, you're like, oh, that's what I was doing with like Slug or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's, That's definitely true for me. Yeah. I feel like I'm always just kind of like working things through with writing and um I don't even know what I'm working through necessarily um and often it's like through workshop feedback or you know friends who are reading the the piece um and their comments on it I'm like oh (laughs) I remember actually Andrea Lawler um in one of my first workshops like named something as gender anxiety uh and I was like what no I don't even know what that means. And then like years later, I was like, oh, yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Slug. I, I kind of sat with Slug and thought about it a bit too, as far as like just the creature. Because you, I think you wrote that like before you'd ever had sex. And like, mm-hmm. it's so perverse and so like just weird. But then also the Slug is just like gender wise. It's so weird too. It's just such... Because it's not, you can't really pin it down easily or whatever. It's such mm-hmm. an interesting option. And it's kind of got a grossness to it as well. Like there's a very like visceral quality to it. Yeah, it's gross. It's also like really magnificent too. I think I yes. think of that slug as just like, I mean, because it's, it's a giant slug. It's like shimmering and it's like iridescent. And, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, yeah, that's something that I didn't, it didn't really occur to me that a slug itself could be like uh, that a slug could that we could think of a slug as having like a queer body um Mm. and that was something uh that um yeah like a friend of mine read a friend my friend Cynthia Barunas who now is like a disability and queer studies scholar um she uh 
she pointed that out in the story and was like, wow, this, this, this slug body is like so queer and so weird and so interesting. And then I was, I was able to sort of like bring that out more and make it more explicit. Um, and then, you know, doing research into slugs um, and learning more about them as hermaphrodites and um, mm -hmm. learning about their uh, mating rituals. Um, it was just, the more I learned about them, the more I was like, uh, I was able to like tap into these like very queer, amazing um, things about them. Yeah, sometimes yeah, it's the thing of where you don't know why there's that gravitational pull towards a thing, but you're like, I think there's something there. There's a there there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I don't know yeah. what it is. Then you start kind of digging a little bit, like, which leads me to a question I was actually thinking about like this morning or yesterday around like, just the question of, and like, I'm a person who doesn't have an MFA. Like, I, I don't think I've ever taken any writing courses since high school. Wow, and like, amazing. <laughs> and like, but, but I'm like old, right? I'm like super old. But like, <laughs> I found myself wondering about that thing of like, and different people do this differently of when a thing starts to percolate. Because I, I have a couple things, few things that are percolating in me right now. Like you can tell those as kernels and then I'll be out for a walk and it's like, oh, I think that thing kind of fits in here. So kind of mm -hmm. wondering how things kind of accumulate. And I was thinking about that. And then I started thinking specifically about your story, Take Us to Your LDR in um, Slug and Other Stories, uh -huh. which starts off with this point of view of these aliens observing this like trans character. And they're kind of confounded by like Fred's action. Like, for example, spending so much time watching like Gossip Girl. And then they're taking delight in their own use of language. Like one of the ones that I really love is your smile wobbles, wobbles, supremely nice. Why are you wobbly? <laughs> so, so there's that. And then there's also this like long distance relationship thing and this like Manta proxy sex toy thing and this underlying queer desire. And just kind of wondering, like I was thinking specifically about that story, but just more generally, like how does a story start to kind of accumulate are you like taking notes are you like making like playlists do you kind of start writing right away and you're like I'm gonna try to like see if I can find the voice like where where do mm -hmm. things kind of go from that initial the seed or the kernel or whatever yeah yeah this is such a great question I, I would love to hear about your process too with this um yeah for me I mean it really depends on the story but I think um with with that story, uh, take us to your LDR. Um, I think it had a few, there were a few stages where, I mean, I'm always someone who it, I spent a long time with a piece and I kind of, I work on it for a while mm -hmm. then I put it away cause I haven't figured it out and I'll turn to something else and then I'll come back to it. Yeah. Like, like you, I might be on a walk one day and just something will, fall into place and then I'm like oh now I can go back to the story because I figured something out about it right. so I just kind of like let myself have that time typically um and sometimes it can be frustrating because like you know I will want to be a faster writer but I just am not yeah what was the kernel for that one if I can the kernel for that one I'm trying to remember I I remember uh I remember wanting to try out second person right? and I can't remember why. And then, then the, the, the second person voice became another character. And then I think I did have a sense that like the, these, these voices were like in the web or something. And then I, then, it, then I sort of like challenged myself to like make it more interesting. Cause I was like, right. cause at first that seemed like predictable. And then I was like, what, what, what would be the thing that would, 
take this to the next level. Um, And that's when they became like embodied, this like embodied, like fake sex toy thing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, which I love so much. Like a manta ray is also just really fucking sexy. Like it's also a creature that like also is like, yeah, gorgeous. And it's just like, what is this majestic creature? I don't know what it is that's doing it for me. (laughs) Undulating. Yeah, it's all those it's all those things. Yeah, I think for me in a way, I um like it's kind of it's similar. Like I think like yeah, it's interesting that maybe that might have kind of come out partly from an exercise of like I'm going to try doing this like I want to explore this point of view. And then the thing starts kind of accumulating like often like finding a constraint is a big one for me. Like it's mm. just kind of like what is the form that will kind of like that actually goes with the content. Because it's hard uh-huh. to kind of start writing it like in a, I don't know, like I feel like most of my stuff that's like longer than like a thousand words has some sort of a form to it. Mm-hmm. Even like a talk that I've agreed to give to like some like MFA students, <laughs> I'm like, it's going to be constraint based. And I think I know what the constraint is going to be, but it's just like, but I kind of need to have that in place a little bit. And then it takes you to a place that you weren't maybe expecting, right? Like you're like second person point of view. I haven't really done this it's interesting you say that because i think second person is so well used in margaret like i think it's like i think like this is this is like one of my main questions for you here like it's because i literally like it's a question that i it's like a craft related question i know that you've kind of taught a little bit maybe not a little bit a bunch on like point of view and like i have a novel that that is like percolating for me right now right I tried Mm -hmm. to write it and then I was like, I can't write it because it's too tender. It's too close to me right now. And it's bringing up too much stuff, but I know I'm going to write it. And like one of the things I'm really grappling with is point of view. Like most Mm. of the stuff I've written is like first person, but I think this one kind of like, I keep kind of toggling back and forth. And I've like recently the last few days, like diagnosed this work as suffering from point of view itis. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, so Dr. Milks, I love that you have a PhD, so you can be Dr. Milks, which sounds <laughs> super fucking amazing, right? Um, I want you to talk about point of view because I think you're really skilled. Like that's one of the things that really is not immediately apparent in Margaret and then becomes apparent is the mm. shifts super adeptly and beautifully between like third person, first person, second person mm-hmm. is done in this like smart, daring, not show offy way or whatever, which which I super appreciate. And so I'm kind of wondering how you approach point of view in your own work and then also how you teach point of view to other writers. Mm-hmm. Great questions. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for these amazing questions. Um point of view. Yeah. Yeah, I really feel like point of view is like probably the most important choice for me like in any given piece Mm. um and it 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 often takes me a while to decide um as I'm sure is the case for for many writers um and I've learned to understand that a lot of it does have to do with gender um in most of my work, I am, you know, writing about myself, um, or, you know, various dimensions of myself or ways to understand certain aspects of myself. So, Mm -hmm. um, interestingly, many of my early stories, I just like could not write in first person. Um, I think I was just really 
detached from myself and it just in some ways it was much easier to um use like a limited first or limited third person um and then i was also very punishing towards these characters who were sort of me but sort of not me um and so i i feel like uh i remember in writing slug which uses a, a limited third person um uh, based on the character Patty. Um, I really, I use Patty's name a lot. I use she a lot. Um, and every time I use the words Patty or she, it sort of feels like a slap. Um, there's a kind of like, a kind of like the, the narrative voice feels sort of like um, dominating Patty in some way, um, or at least that's how I, I was thinking about it. It was only later a few years after that that I started to understand that first person could be a way to explore the self without like a gender pronoun attached to it and and that was like a real revelation to me um, and so then I was writing a lot of first person um, and in Margaret I think th those experiments come through um, yeah like the way that I think the first person in Margaret, we see first person when Margaret is young, and we also see a return to first person uh, when Margaret is becomes M and is is older and um, like understands themselves more. Um, and uh, yeah, so first person for me is very much about a kind of like self acceptance or a kind of self assurance. And the second person is, is really interesting. Um, I mean, there's so many different ways to use second person. The, uh, the switch to second person in Margaret is, is when the character is like sort of the most removed from herself in a way. Um, and I, I use her when Margaret is her and mm -hmm. I, yeah the older margaret i use they then pronounce for it. yeah the yeah. teen margaret i use she her programs for pronouns for um oh yeah oh yeah second person so th that second person is a very kind of dissociated uh second person um and it's also something that i drew to a certain extent from memoirs of eating disorders and other you know experiences of, of mental uh mental illness where um writers will like shift into second person when they are most kind of like at their lowest point or they're most sort of like divorced from themselves um which is a trope of some some of that literature um which is part of what that section is is drawing on and how do you how do you teach it Oh, how do I teach it? Is it just um, is it activities? It's kind of like try to do this with this sort of do you know like because it's it's hard to teach. Sometimes you can do a thing, but then teaching it is can be super tricky. Yeah, um, this is a, a question that I'll be thinking about next week as I develop a course on <laughs> experiments and point of view. Um, uh let's see it's uh right now i teach mostly first year writing and uh gender and women's studies i occasionally i get to teach a, a creative writing class um at pace uh called creative writing for social justice and we do talk about point of view um but yeah i think i i talk about it i approach it with um 
with the idea that it is a, a central choice and perhaps the first choice for, for some of us at least. Um, and I also try to talk about some of like the ethical issues around point of view, like what it means to inhabit a first person mm -hmm. um, for someone who is, is like you or someone who is not like you and some of those questions. Um, and yeah, mostly we just look at examples and I just try to show, and we just try to like understand how they're working and yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Because I, I mean, I think so much of it is you see someone do a thing, and then you're like, oh, okay, maybe I can, I can do that kind of thing. Which, which makes me think about. I know in here I have somewhere, which I think is like very related to this. Um, at the end of Margaret, and I, and I think this is kind of uh, very much speaks to this. Uh, you write, this book is indebted to and informed by many, many texts. What follows is an incomplete indexing of some that have offered models and wisdom, and in some cases, actual language. Um, and I think, I think, yeah, that's so well thread into into Margaret. And then I think about like your essays and reviews on works by other writers, like including stuff on like Goodreads and things like that, which can also like illuminate a work in a really inter in an interesting way. And you're spending time with the work, right? You're trying to do some like um, work through it and f and for it um and i think about books you teach um as well as writers who seem to be kind of like perennial influences like maybe kathy acker or like mm -hmm. Dodie bellamy um can you talk about like models and wisdom and other writers oh absolutely i mean i can talk about you i can talk about this book little blue encyclopedia <laughs> which is so brilliant <laughs> okay and really just like uh, renewed my faith in like, you know, experimental weird fiction. Um, so, so good and weird and, um, totally its own thing. Um, yeah. And actually a lot of fiction that is coming out of Canada by, um, trans writers, especially trans women writers, um, has been super influential to me. Um, uh, this came out, I think, after my, your, your book came out after my book was on, um, yeah, it was like already on its way into the world. But, um, but uh, books like um, She of the Mountains by Vivek Shreya and um, Fierce Times and Notorious Liars uh, by Kai Cheng Tom um, have been like super uh, formative for me um, as a writer, uh, specifically um, in a specific stage of writing the novel where where I just sort of needed a boost. Um, uh, and um, those books have been, uh, let me see how to, how to get into this. Um, oh yeah, so I was really stuck um, with Margaret around the question of like whether it was YA or not YA and how to mm -hmm. like deal with these markets that of course like I you know I, I don't really have a, a an investment in and in, um well yeah the, the YA world is just like not my community I mean I love a lot of the young adult fiction I've read but um I, I didn't really see my book as a YA book, but um, we were having a hard time selling it as an adult book because it is so adolescent in mm -hmm. many ways. Mm -hmm. um, she of the Mountains and Fierce Femmes gave me models for for works that like were coming of age and in some ways like were really invested in 
narratives of adolescence. Um, uh, and we're just like doing whatever the fuck they wanted, you know? Right. And yeah. weren't really con- concerned about like fitting into these boxes. Um, so that was really, uh, I mean, I just love those books uh, for many reasons, but that was one of the, one of the reasons that they were both so important for me to read at the time I, I read them. Um, yeah, what you were talking, you were asking about. Yeah, just like models, models and oh. wisdom, I think, like that kind of stuff. Especially I was thinking of, you know, you're talking about like introducing students to certain writers and like sometimes you see someone do a thing and you're like, oh, right. So I guess, yeah, that's one of the things you're talking about with like with those two books, which both of which I, I really, really adore is like it widens certain possibilities or it's kind mm-hmm. of like, oh, I can go here, I can go there or mm-hmm. yeah, neither of which are really YA books, but I know people who have like taught one or maybe both of them in, in courses where, where that's part of the focus. Cause it's like, this totally fits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jean Thornton is, is someone else who uh, I feel like every time I read her work uh, gives me ideas and possibilities, especially around point of view, because she's done some really interesting work with um, point of view. Um, she's, she's used the, um, the gender neutral one. Okay. Like she's written a whole story using, like one it's called nine bedrooms it's it's really brilliant um and uh and of course with summer fun um working with the epistolary uh you in, in lots of really uh, exciting ways um yeah in terms of oh yeah kathy acker perennial influence dodie bellamy as well um and um some of the other uh influences that are um, directly referenced in the in the in the novel are are musical, um, and um, I think of some of those songs as also contributing to um, the aesthetic scaffolding of the of the novel. Um, for example, Bohemian Rhapsody um, mm-hmm. by Queen, uh, just the structure of that song, um, in some ways, kind of. Uh, has been a model for the structure of Margaret because there's, it's like this episodic uh, song that like shifts genres and modes um, like four or five times in the, in the song. And yet it's like really cohesive. Yeah. Do you, I mean, this is a question I, do, I don't have down here, but it was one of the things I find myself thinking about related to your work. Um, I, th- I think it's so interesting to kind of like think of a song as a thing that kind of leads you through something. Like I know when I was writing Little Blue, like there's the the character Vivian, like her favorite band is like Suede. And then I heard them and I was like, fuck, this like totally makes sense. It's all about like just the over, I don't know, just the drama of it, just the grandiosity songs about sex and drugs and stuff. And then like the narrator is much more like a Frank Ocean fan. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense as far as the different voices go. Um, Mm. But I do find myself kind of like thinking about um, pop culture, which is one of the things that is kind of like threaded through, I think, like both of our works and and all of the books that you had that that came out um, last year are in, in one way or another kind of like related to pop culture and I was like okay do, do you make like playlists or kind of like uh and I think of other people like Tom Cho is like another person who I kind of think of in that mix there as well and I guess I'm kind of wondering about like infusing your work with with pop culture not in a way that just is kind of like nod nod wink wink but in a way of where like there is even like some wisdom there like there's some really interesting stuff within 
all of these different places, whether it's like, yeah, Tori Amos, Fiona Apple, or like, you know, video games, choose your own adventures, like My Little Pony stuff or whatever, and like mm-hmm. in- including it in the work, which can open it up in different ways, especially when we think about like audience and stuff like that. It's like, oh, okay, I know what My Little Pony is. Like, this makes it accessible in a way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, that also runs the risk of being inaccessible to, to people who are not familiar with it. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I guess I think of those, uh, those references as, um, you know, part of the environment that the, that the character is inhabiting. Um, and, uh, also just part of my artistic and cultural heritage as a, as an artist, um, as a writer, uh, because so many of those, um, songs so many of those artists have just like been so influential to me and have just really shaped how I think about art and and what is good art and what is exciting art Mm -hmm. um yeah I've had to really uh kind of temper my uh zeal for bringing in pop culture references um because of uh, copyright uh, uh, and permissions yeah. things, which I didn't really think about for most of my career until until Feminist Press was like, mm, <laughs> let's change this. I'm curious if you've had to navigate those sorts of things in your work as well. A little bit. I, I do have on my to-do list to ask for rights for two specific songs that are in my mm-hmm. next book. But if I can't get them, 95% of the songs are ones that I have written and that I'm currently playing with my band. So oh, great. I'll just that like replace it, it with something else. But there are certain things where you're like, oh my God, like this is so perfect as like an epigraph or oh, this is so mm-hmm. perfect as like something somebody's listening to on a playlist. I just want these two lines. But then I've heard of these like cease and desist orders from like... <laughs> Even though it's only like four words from a song, it's like, no, this novel needs to get shut down immediately. <laughs> it's with a small yeah, publisher. It's like, pay us $100,000 or like, <laughs> you know, your book that, you know, they printed 1,500 copies for the first pressing needs to like, I don't know, be recycled or what. It just seems so, yeah, but it, but it's it's an, it's a factor, right? I think that's the thing is like, are we leaving ourselves open to possibly being like, you know, like a lawsuit or something like this? Yeah. Yeah. So I've had, I've learned to be a little bit more, more careful. (laughs) Yeah. Is that, is that part of, I mean, one of the other things that I, that I think about that I haven't really talked to that many people about is like, I mean, I talked to to Casey about it a little bit is like the editing process. Like, I don't know how to know what to keep in and what to like be willing to let go. And I think it's a thing that as I've, as I've aged, and this is one of the things that's nice about being older, I think like an older writer is I'm more willing to be like, yeah, that's true. That thing that I worked really hard on for a few years, it probably, it doesn't make the, it's clever, but it doesn't make me feel a thing in my body. Like, so Mm -hmm. me, so much of it kind of comes back to like, does it feel expansive and emotional? Mm-hmm. is it oh, like those are, yeah. <laughs> is it useful and beautiful like these are some of my things or whatever it's like yeah is there like utility there like yeah the expansiveness and and the emotion I feel like if it's just me showing off that okay I'm kind of smart or whatever you know that's where like certain writers who I think I really liked when I was younger now I'm mm-hmm. like I don't feel a lot of stuff in my body they're just kind of like showing off with this thing and like mm-hmm. are there kind of like grounding things where you're kind of like okay to, to the, let you know whether something should stay in or, or go. Cause sometimes maybe you'll go back and forth with an 
editor and it'll be like the third time and they're like actually we really think these three pages need to get cut or you know yeah well first i want to say that i'm i'm taking notes i love these questions um as kind of litmus test does it feel expansive and emotional um that's so these are such important um yeah ways to to make that kind of decision and that is really what i love about one of the things i love so much about little blue is how how emotional it is i mean it is doing like very clever things but it is grounded in like so much feeling um yeah just once again hats off <laughs> you're, you're just making me blush here i'm a person who almost <laughs> never blushes like anyone who knows me is like hazel does not <laughs> blush like shame is not really a thing i tend to carry that much in my body anymore so i don't blush from that like embarrassment but now mm-hmm. i'm blushing a little bit and um thank you for the for the kind words anyway <laughs> um yeah well now i've lost oh yeah getting rid of things um yeah i feel like i'm such a i'm such a reviser like and i and i mean like most of my work goes through um like many different drafts that are often quite transformative from draft to draft so i i i really it's it's easy for me to let go of things um and uh yeah i don't know what that's about but i'm i'm usually pretty happy to just like get rid of an entire draft (laughs) and start completely over that that astonishes me do do you have a sense of what it is normally that makes a thing not be included in it's like it's not at the core of what this thing is or it's kind of like like i think when i chatted with maybe now i'm remembering when i chatted with tori i think most of the stuff that wound up getting cut was like the jokes from like detransition Mm -hmm. baby was like it's not that funny. We'll like leave it on the cutting room floor. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of what the stuff is or like, you're just totally willing to be like, it's not working instead of like trying to revise it and like polish the turd, which is like one of those phrases I sometimes find myself using. Where I'm like, it's okay. We can make it more shiny, but like maybe I'll just start again. Right. Like I do remember reading a thing where it was, I think about DH Lawrence, like talking about like writing a novel and like writing the first draft and then getting to the end and then putting it in a drawer and starting again from page one instead of Mm. and then it's like now i know what i wanted to say so instead of going Uh, back and trying to suture it and kind of make it work i'll just start where i think i probably should have started i can always go back in the drawer which is such an interesting but there's such trust i don't know like it's just it's a really interesting way of working right being willing to scrap a thing and start again which Mm -hmm. i i I find hard to do yeah it is it is hard to do but um i find it so freeing as well because it just means that, you know, it just means that there's still a lot of possibility, yeah. which I guess is always important to me. Um, with Margaret, I I did like print it out a few times and um, just started type retyping it. That was mm. one, one um, way that I revised it. And pretty quickly, uh, I can tell like what has energy and what doesn't. I guess that's one mm-hmm. of the the questions I ask myself is, is there energy here? Right. Um, is there like forward motion or like what is what is pulling this along? Um, and uh, and then, yeah, it's really easy to cut things because instead of like doing the labor of retyping, it's just like, oh, I, you know, this is boring. Bye. <laughs> 
Right. Oh, I mean, the retyping, that's, that's so interesting to me because, yeah, then it's like, actually, do I really want to like, where's the copy and paste? I think that's a place we've come to now where there's a lot of just lazy stuff that gets carried over. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, I'll just throw the whole thing in there and like fix it later. And then it becomes harder and harder over time as it accumulates. Mm-hmm. And you're like, yeah. Or you're like, if I cut it, then I'll never see it. So do I need to have a separate file that's just all of my like ephemera, like all the effluvia is like a term that I sometimes <laughs> use for that. <laughs> all the de- detritus that. where it's just kind of like, but maybe I want that paragraph later. Whereas with a computer, it's so different than the days before. Like that's one of the things that was so interesting to me about like the Troy Amos bootleg web ring is like, number one, like the title is so great. Anytime I would tell somebody, they'd be like, what the fuck is that? And I would, <laughs> I would tell them. And if there's somebody who's younger, they'd be like, what? And then if it's somebody like that, and that's what I think is so brilliant also too, about the remember the internet like project is like, there are so many things that we've just absolutely forgotten about, but it's very built on that materiality of the actual mm-hmm thing like you're actually mailing a thing to somebody mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is like and I think like you're also a person maybe who has like maybe published like a number of like chapbooks or published in zines and things like that yeah. where there is a materiality like you actually have this physical thing um, which is which is so different than just like okay here's here's a link to the thing it's like it's in the world and maybe there's yeah. a scarceness as well like I know there's some stuff that's like sold out you know, like I think yeah. maybe Mackenzie Work like uh like quoted parts of um one of the chapbooks kicking the baby, is that right? Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In inside of inside of uh, reverse cowgirl. And I was like, okay, I've never read this work, but it has all this stuff here and it's very specifically about like public sex and things like that. So it's mm-hmm. like yeah. Yeah, it was really, uh, I think it, it helped me to write that essay on, on public sex because I knew it was going to be in a chat book with a very print, small run and right. that it was not going to be floating around the internet. And I feel like that is something that, um, uh, you know, I think about in terms of where I where I place things um, yep. because there are certain things that I just don't really want to be um, published online. And I do, yeah, and also, yeah, the materiality is so, uh, um, it is important. And I definitely, you know, I grew up, I didn't grow up with zines, really. It wasn't until my 20s that I, like, even knew what a zine was, um, my mid-20s. And uh, my friends, John Bylander and I, um, got together and collaborated on a zine, Mildred Pierce, that we put out for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that taught me so much about publishing, Um and just how expensive <laughs> it is to print anything. Um, but also it was just such a joy to like, you know, have launch parties and to see people interacting with this, you know, um, it, it was like, a, it was really more a magazine than a zine, but it was, you know, um, independently created with no advertising. So it, we called it a zine. Um, but yeah, I just love that culture too of exchange um, which I guess is probably definitely, there's probably a direct line from that, you know, um, participating in bootleg culture, mailing back and forth to participating in scene culture, albeit a bit later um, when it wasn't as like, uh, it was, yeah, I don't know. Zine culture, you know, is, is still, there's still a very active zine culture, but um, when we were participating in it, it was like sort of after the, the golden, the golden age of, of zines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there is something but between those things. Like, this is one of the things that I notice about, like, putting stuff out in the world is, like, with a book, 
you know, it takes a long time. Like that's one of those things whenever people are like, when does your book come out? And I'm like, oh, it's out like six months or a year from now. And they're like, how does it take so long? (laughs) And it's like, no, we have not even a first draft. We have like multiple drafts to it, but it just takes. So I really also understand like, you know, people who start like newsletters and all these kind of other ways of, of putting things out in the world, like a really quick, quick pace, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that time is one of those things that I find myself thinking about a bunch and like, and also like some of your work, at least, at least a couple of your books really from, from last year are really focused on like the very much the nineties. Right. And like Mm -hmm. one of the things that I find is so interesting about like the Tori Amos, but like Webring is like, will be from a specific show. Right. And so you're listening to this time and place and you have a document of it. And I'm a person who thinks a lot about time travel. Like one mm. of the many things I'm working on right now is a time travel romance with my best friend. Oh, sweet. Who, who used to be my partner. And, uh, and it's just like time travel. And that's kind of a form of time travel in a way, right? And I think like, I do wonder if like writing, especially thinking so intentionally and so specifically about back in that time, and like I mentioned to a couple of people I know who do somatics recently, I was like, I think a body is a time machine. And I think they were like, kind of, yeah. Because <laughs> it holds more this, about that. It holds all of this knowledge in it, right? And I think yeah. there are ways of through our body kind of accessing some of the experiences we've had before. And I see it all the time in my cat, Gus, who is like a little trauma baby. And like, I don't know what happened to her before I met her, but if I approach her with my hand coming at her face, she's just absolutely terrified, right? Mm -hmm. Because to her, it's the idea that I can hurt you. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is that's happening in her body, but it's taking her back to another, you know, I mean, it's not exactly what's what's happening, but in a Mm -hmm. sense, you know, I think like, I don't know, like, yeah. So I do think about time travel a, a bunch and I found myself wondering about like you spending so much time in the in the 90s and I mean for me that that sounds kind of like terrifying because I wasn't very happy back then whereas like now I'm so much happier um what was that because because writing is kind of that too you're evoking a thing you're conjuring and you're in that time period right you Mm -hmm. kind of need to be it's like that Christopher Reeve film like somewhere in time or whatever where he travels back in time with his brain and then there's like a penny and it's from the 80s so he kind of comes back what you I can't. have to watch this. <laughs> it's it's a crazy it's this crazy movie. I think it was one of the ones he did after Superman, but he uses his mind to go back in time. It's a time travel romance. But oh, you wow. can't have any of the materials from nowadays. So he has to wear like clothing from the time and all this. And then mm-hmm. if you slip up, like it brings you back to to this other time. So you can't really have all these weird artifacts from nowadays, like in your fiction. So really in a way you're kind of steeped in that time when you're writing it, maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I definitely need to see the, this film. <laughs> Sounds really wild. Um, it's not fantastic, but it's, it was important <laughs> to me as a kid. As a kid, I loved it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was challenging to to stay in the '90s. It was. I felt like I was just kind of reliving my adolescence, which, um, like yours, was was not mm-hmm. that exciting. I mean, it it was is quite painful. Um, I was also concerned that the kind of cultural, what am I trying to say? The cultural investment in the 90s, like that has been going on for, you know, Mm. I don't know how long, but it seems like a long time now. I was worried that that would end by the time that the book came out, but it just seems like 
the nineties just are never ending. They're just like living with us, like this parallel kind of extended yeah, um, decade. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. I mean, there was, uh, there was a lot of pleasure of course in reliving um, or, or revisiting specific aspects of the nineties, mm-hmm. um, especially the music. In fact, the, the high school, this, the sections and Margaret that take place in high school um, and in various drafts, the music kind of overwhelmed um, the uh, the events of the of the sections because I just didn't want to be there. You know, I just wanted to be right. like with the music and not like living with this, uh, not like living with this character who was so close to you know who I was at that time. I think like there are certain things that I just find myself really thinking about and I think like some of your work is really a great example of, of of grappling with things that I think are sometimes really hard to kind of write about right mm-hmm. and like one of the things is related to yeah like bodies and mm-hmm. I'll preface this by saying that when I think about the title of your book slug and other stories I sometimes think slug and other bodies probably because I'm conflating it a little bit with Carmen Maria Machado's uh, short story collection, Her Body and Other Parties. Oh, yeah. I just thought it was so interesting. And then also (laughs) thinking of like, you know, Margaret as well and like bodies. And I'm like, it totally makes sense. And also kind of makes sense as the title. (laughs) Characters kind of trying on all these different bodies in a way, right? To a certain Mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. but a few years ago, uh, I read a book called On Living that is written by this like hospice chaplain called Carrie Egan. And the part that really stood out to me was the section on bodies. And right. including very specifically, like a lot of people wishing they hadn't carried so much shame around their bodies. And were yeah. like, this is what I experienced pleasure through. This is, you know, what I used to like give birth to my kids. Like, you know, like I used to be able to dance and all these things. And I mean, come on, like with, I don't know, we all have bodies and like to feel so much shame for most of our lives. Just, it's like, I don't know. It's it's just so deeply unfortunate. I remember thinking to myself, like, I need to befriend my body. Yeah. And like one of the most helpful and healing things for me has kind of been like writing, you know, especially mm-hmm. characters in their bodies or characters kind of grappling with having a body and this kind of stuff. And I'm kind of wondering about writing about bodies and, and shame. Um, Cause I think it can be, it's hard, but also very powerful. And it's something that is like, we all kind of deal with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, for me too, writing has been um, a really important way to move through body related shame often. Um, and I think sex also has, has helped me a lot, um, to, uh, to move through that as well. And writing has helped me get to a place where I could have sex. (laughs) So it's all connected. Yeah. Yeah, but I think, um, yeah, I think bodies in my work tend to be there. There's tend to be a, there tends to be a lot of ambivalence around the body. Like their body is a site of fear. There's and shame, and there's like some disgust too, even. But there's also 
a lot of celebration and um, and pleasure and um, yeah, the body also becomes a site of possibility in a lot of ways um, in some of my work as well. Um, and, and slug in particular, where Patty ends up becoming a giant slug, which is like a way for her to escape her human, you know, uh, constrained embodiment. Um, and like cis heterofeminity, um, I guess specifically. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, the last story too, uh, Patrick gets inspired, which like calls back to slug. Um, there's like this, uh, yeah, there's this like bodily transformation that's, um, that I think is also very ambivalent. Like Patrick becomes basically, what does Patrick become? Patrick becomes a particle, um, uh, like a spit particle, um, gets inhaled by his lover and then exhaled um, and it's like floating through the city at the end. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, the body is like super important to like practically everything I've ever written. So, uh, so I've, I've approached it in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, that, that, that's all fair. I appreciate all of that too. It's like, as you're talking to, I'm just suddenly remembering, like, I was like, what I say cruising I was like cruising your goodreads and I was like looking at what you've read and like I noticed like one of the books you have read is this book by Julietta Singh that I really love uh called oh, yeah. No Archive Will Restore You yeah oh, so good and that one there has this scene that made me like because I saw that and then I flashed on a scene in that book and I flashed on your work in relation to that scene and the mm -hmm. scene in that book that I flashed on when I saw it on your Goodreads is a scene where she reads from a work of hers. I think maybe it's Unthinking Mastery, a book she hadn't published yet. And then mm -hmm. one of the students, uh, like she shares a manuscript with this, this grad class. And one of the students says to her as they're sitting around like having drinks later, like, how come there's so much shit in your book? <laughs> how come you talk <laughs> so much about shit? And then she's like, I don't think that's true. And the grad student is like, nope, here's like all the incidents <laughs> where you talk about your shit. <laughs> and then she's like, oh, wow. And then I was thinking about your work and I was thinking about like, I think you're a writer who who knows you have a bunch of stuff about shit in your work. And like some of it I think is really fantastic. And now suddenly I'm like flashing on towards the end of the swamp. Uh, what is the swamp? Oh, swamp, swamp cycle. Swamp cycle. Yeah, there's this thing in here where it's talking about soon it will be too cold to want to take a shit. This is the narrator. The cold air will make my skin tremble and my asshole shit shy. Is the asshole a mouth or a gate to another world? Like this, I don't know. Like it's just, and then there's like poop is like one of those things, but it's also like the body. Yeah. The sight of like so many different things, you know, but mm. I don't necessarily know that that's a place that like most writers would go to. Like I do sometimes find myself putting stuff in my work and I'm like, this should be really shameful, but I'm just going to like lean into it and put it in the work. Yeah. And then maybe I feel less ashamed of it later. Hmm. Does that happen? 
It has totally happened. It's totally happened. Yeah. Like there's a thing in like specifically I'm flashing on a thing in like my next book that is like one of my like most shameful thoughts when I was like eight or nine or whatever. And I was like, wow. I'm just going to put this in the head of a narrator who's like having public sex or whatever. And, and they just like go to this place and then come back. And I'll be curious if anybody asks me about this. But it's but it's also a thing of where it's just like nice to be able to go like, actually, I don't feel ashamed of that. It's just interesting. It's like yeah. interesting. That's what I thought when I was like nine or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think for me too. Yeah. Writing about this stuff is a way to, to um, deflect or yeah. Reject the shame. Yeah. Just sort of let things be as they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Looking back at this story, Swamp Cycle is um is making me uh, think about the parallels between this story and the body world section of uh, Margaret and the mystery of the missing body where the characters travel into what is basically the digestive system of this like giant mutant um, kind of undefined body. We don't, it's like a mystery where the body comes from or why they're there. but yeah, when I was writing Swamp Cycle, I was really interested in kind of reimagining the reproductive system as like a digestive system. Um, Cause they're the, the, the narrator and this other character who kind of cycles through a few different relational identities. Um, they have sex um, that involves guts and bowels and then the bowel, I, you know, it's like, <laughs> then then there's a baby <laughs> yeah um, that uh comes out of the stomach or i don't know where the baby comes from but um that checks out <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah it was just kind of a way to like reimagine the body uh, yeah to queer the reproductive system um yeah and then margaret there's really there's like no yeah, I think I was, I wanted to avoid the sexed um, body in this body world. So just like sticking to the digestive system, which made sense because, you know, they're dealing with eating disorders. Um, that was a way to do that. Yeah, I'm just thinking about Margaret right now too, and just how many different things it's kind of doing all at once that are like so beautiful to me, like where there is like, it gets really, it has some really like incredibly like, dark and intense intense things in there but also some like incredibly like hilarious things and moments when I can tell like I don't know I was looking again at like one of the things that jumped out at me when I was reading it like the second time was like the moment I think it starts on round page like 70 71 where you start like naming all of these different previous like girls can solve anything cases and just like giving us a taste of kind of like Margaret's bad idea case number one case number eight like Angie and the ghost of Hollywood Cemetery you know, Gina and the prehistoric portal, all of the stuff to do with like aliens from the planet X, Gretchen mm-hmm. and the beep from outer space. Um, and just kind of thinking of, of, of that sort of stuff and the kind of like inventiveness and fun of that component. But then also, yeah, things related to like eating disorders and queer and trans identities. And then also like one of the things that is the most uh, that that really like makes me like super admirable, f- super admire your talent is just like, in some ways like when I when I when I read a bunch of your work, I think like oh you feel like someone who maybe like cut your teeth as a poet, 
you know, because like, because of things like word choice. Right. And, uh, and sometimes it's like, I know there's a section in there where like, I don't know, I was looking the other day, like spit is another thing that appears in a bunch of your work, which, which I really like. And, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was like talking about like these two teens who are eating cereal bars. And then the sentence, her chewing was spittier than mine. And I was like, spittier is <laughs> spitty, spittier. Yes, excellent, right? It's it's that level of detail. I don't know if you have your, do you have your copy of Margaret? Like, um, I do, yeah. And the Mystery of the Missing Body. Uh, is it possible to get you to read the opening paragraph? Because I think it's one of those things where I really think a lot about, as I'm sure you do as well, like openings and how we mm. move into a thing. And I think it's mm-hmm. just such an interesting opening for this book. And I think it's doing all that stuff that I'm talking about too with like, really interesting language choice and in the way that I would say kind of like reflects a certain like I don't know poetry (laughs) um sure I can read that I do want to say I did not cut my teeth as a poet um and uh I but I am I am so flattered that um you would imagine that I might have um (laughs) uh okay adolescence we all go through it some of us again and again. It's a transitional space, a waiting room, this long shapeless stretch between youth and adulthood, naivete and knowledge. It's the private heat within which our goop becomes what it wants to become. It's the mystery of the banana, the magic converting its peel from pale green to a brash and confident yellow. It's the burrow of dirt into which the earthworm worms to improve itself in secret. It's the passage from this into that, from here to there, to some kind of passing maturity. Adolescence is the hallway, the between, the almost, the not there yet. Thank you. I mean, I think it's just really um, so skillful and kind of gives us, sets things up in in this way that and then in the next the, the next sentence, we, we meet, we have Margaret who, who gets introduced here. But I think like, just this idea of foregrounding adolescence and this like again and againness of things. Um, and we have it at one point in there of these like levels of having to kind of go up and, and you've written stories as well with kind of the format of like a video game of like trying to move on to the next thing. And we have that recurrence and, and all, all of that sort of stuff going on. But then also like very specifically in just like the language of like it's the private heat within which our goop become what's it want, what it wants to become. It's the mystery of the banana, the magic converting its peel from pale green to to brash and confident yellow. It's like just the kind of thing of like the mystery, magic, converting confident, peel, pale. Like there's kind of a, it's doing something with with the actual words themselves or like the choice of a word like brash, which Mm -hmm. doesn't feel like a first draft kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like it feels like a thing where you've spent time and clearly... Can you can you say well, like when this paragraph actually became the first paragraph? Because my guess is this probably wasn't in the first draft. Right, not at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, yeah, I can't. I I'm not sure when exactly, but um, the paragraph was written. Um, I think pretty close to a time when the book was nearly done. In earlier drafts, um, I had been really I wanted the novel to move sort of chronologically with age um starting with girls can solve anything and then Mm. 
Um, and then moving into the high school section and then sort of like, cause I, I was really excited about the idea of having a book that like kind of came of age with its protagonist in terms of the genre and style shifts. Um, and I think that's still in, in the book. Um, I think of it as like the, the main structural conceit. Um, but my agent convinced me actually to start in high school because that is really the present of the book. Um, and so we moved, we moved this and it became the first paragraph. And then I, then I revised it because it was the first paragraph and I wanted it to sort of like kind of contain a bit of a map of what the book might be and, and, uh, kind of hint at like the mystery and the magic and the way that fantasy would, would come into play. Yeah, I mean, I think it's such a good opening. It's such a good portal in into the book where it really foregrounds this thing that we're going to kind of move through. And I think I think I personally think it was a really great choice because also it's the thing of thinking about how time moves, right? Mm. And kind of like we have this present, but then also leaping back to the past and kind of like I used to be in this thing called, you know, Girls Can Solve Anything and like thinking about that, like trying to kind of recoup that past or like remembering these relationships that were there before and just like yeah the weirdness of of time in some ways I think all kind of fiction maybe is about time in one way or another <laughs> like mm, yeah kind of how it feels to move through time um yeah, totally I think also thank you so much for for that for that commentary um I was also really I wanted to make a connection between adolescence and transness um so I was thinking about mm-hmm. um yeah, just kind of like adolescence as a as a trans space, as like a, a a kind of process that you go through from you know moving from one um, position to another, um, and uh, yeah, I think I also just wanted to announce that this is a book. This is a novel of adolescence. Like, make no mistake. Yeah, we are in adolescence, <laughs> and we're yeah. going to take adolescence very seriously. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does all this. It also tells us we're in really good hands here as well. I am one of these people who like hated adolescence, but still, even as someone in my 40s, like I am so drawn to stories of adolescence because I think mm-hmm. it is that thing you're talking about. It's that space of coming into an identity and mm-hmm. like finding your folks or or whatever, or becomes like, I think for a lot of us, it's kind of like, if we don't have those things in our lives, we look to other things. Like maybe we're like watching a TV show. Like I'll watch like a lot of Degrassi or like, you know, like these kind of things of where there are these groups and maybe you're kind of part of one of those groups in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and they kind of have this proxy, like, you know, I think proxy is another word that I think maybe recurs in, in different parts, parts of your work or whatever. I think there's that kind of proxiness that even music can do that too. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I can't Mm -hmm. admit that I feel these feelings, but like, I'm really listening to a lot of Tori Amos and I'm feeling a lot of things (laughs) in my body. (laughs) I can't put my finger on it, but when she puts her fingers on the, on on the piano (laughs) and does a thing, she's doing it for me. (laughs) Because there is that a little bit, right? Mm-hmm, it gives mm-hmm. us that space. And it's like you're doing it in the privacy of your own room. And it's like you're moving through yeah. feelings and you can't articulate them. But this music is doing it kind of for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I just saw Tori Amos play with Gene actually a few <laughs> weeks ago. Was it last week? It might have been last week. I think it was last week. Yeah. And I still felt that way. <laughs> You know, she's like mediating all of our feelings for us. 
That's and that's such a gift, right? That that's so. Yes. I, I saw I saw the images on social media. Like that's been one of the nice things is seeing people do things and like yeah, being able to to go to things and stuff. Um, being like super mindful of your time. I just I want want to kind of ask you. Um, like what you're working on now, if it's something you're kind of okay with. It's interesting because like I, at the very end, brought up the start of Margaret. But in some ways that feels kind of like fitting as an entry to there. I mean, I would definitely like wreck, wreck all of your all of your works. Um, R-E-C, not W-R-E-C-K. Thank To clarify there, you feel like someone who maybe works on more than one thing at a time um and maybe is somewhat patient with your with your work which is which which i i I totally appreciate um what are you kind of doing like what's kind of percolating for you or kind of coming through now right now i'm working on um what is becoming a memoir in essays i think that Mm. is that is related to um well it's about milk um all these essays that relate to milk in various ways. So it's a way of thinking through name stuff um, and family and um, whiteness. Um, There's like an erotic uh, element to, yeah, who knew that milk would be so generative? Um, But the more I learn about, the more I, the more research I do, the more I'm like, you know, I just have so many ideas of ways to, approach it i feel like i should uh end this with some funny milk related pun but i can't really think of anything you're just milking Creamy, it juicy yeah. i don't know <laughs> not juicy that's the opposite of milk <laughs> that, that, that totally clarifies something for me too that was kind of in the back of my mind was like looking at your goodreads i was like huh this like history of milk that you gave <laughs> two stars to <laughs> it's like <laughs> And now it, and I also was wondering if you were maybe working on a memoir. Like I know um, your your Tori Amos book is is a memoir of sorts, but it's such a constrained, very kind of specific time capsule of there. And I think like the memoir is such an interesting possible area for, mm-hmm. so I'm like super excited. And I'm suddenly flashing on like, I feel like one of your like Instagram stories is like milk muscle or whatever, like some sort of a drink or whatever. Oh yes, muscle milk. <laughs> muscle milk. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the essays is about mu- muscle milk. Um, oh. Yeah. No, the memoir has been, uh, there's so much exciting uh, formal experimentation in creative nonfiction these days. It's been really exciting to see. And, um, and uh, I've been, you know, inspired and like, I want to, uh, I want to get in- into it more. Yeah. Dodie Bellamy has been a huge influence in that regard. And um Carmen Marie Machado uh, in the dream house, which mm-hmm. is so brilliant. And yes. yeah, I could name a long list of people who are doing really exciting things with nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited for this book. I'm super excited. Yeah. Um, and I'm excited for yours in my inbox and I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. No, thank you again. Thank you again for, for being willing to like, to take, take a look at it and everything. Um, I do feel like there's just so many interesting like overlaps between the kind of things that we're doing. And like, it's so interesting too, to see like, for example, in like, I think it was maybe in, in Patrick in, in Slug where you're like, Oh, like Dodie Bellamy has like taught my story some t- a few times. And it's also the beautiful thing of being like, Oh, like being well read by someone whose work you adore. Mm-hmm. that's like kind of one of the best things 
It is absolutely. Yes. Thank you for doing that for me <laughs> in this. Yeah. And for all of these um, episodes, I just learned so much from, from these conversations. Our podcast theme song is Tall Girl by Wares from the album Survival, courtesy of Wares and Mint Records. I will also say that the album Survival was 100% my favorite album of 2020. It is so great. Our rad logo was designed by my lovely friend, Regina Faronejad at Handmade Design. t for t is recorded and edited on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, on whose lands I am fortunate to work and to live. Thanks so goddamn fucking much for listening. Bye.